Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, listeners. If you love improv comedy, you need to be listening to Improv for Humans. It's one of the longest-running shows here on Earwolf, and tons of your favorite comedians have been on it. It's hosted by Matt Besser, who you guys know founded UCB. He's of the world-famous improv show Ask Cat Paul. I know you know that show very well. I've been an Ask Cat, and I've been taught by Matt Besser, and I've been on Improv for Humans. I am all up in this show. You're all up in it, along with guests like Lauren Lapkus and Mary Holland and Zach Reno and Jessica McKenna and Paul F. Tompkins, everybody, everybody, your Manzoukas buddy, everybody. Yeah, what's kind of great about this show, I always think, is you can't get good improv all over the country or the world. There are certain places where you can go and it will always be good. Uh, I'm sure there's more places than I even know about. But if you're in the middle of nowhere and you want to hear good improv, this show brings improv home to you, right to your ears. And, you know, I think... It's really helpful and inspiring. I think when I grew up, I didn't know that this type of improv existed. And to see them do it on a week-in-and-out basis, it's pretty phenomenal. So check out Improv for Humans. There's a new episode every Thursday in your favorite podcast app. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of them. That's a, that's a definite action that yeah. you can commit to for a show about improvisation. There you go. Just yes and and subscribe. The year is 1952. Gray skies, yellow umbrella, it's singing in the rain. Welcome to... Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. Today we're going to be talking about singing in the rain. But before we get to that, Amy, I want to talk to you about some of the responses we got to our last episode, which of course was Double Indemnity. You got some strong opinions on that movie, baby. I do. You know, a lot of people uh, did not like the use of baby. They <laughs> thought it was a little dismissive, but I was like, you have to kind of embrace some of the artifice of the 40s. I mean, that's what was going on, you know? That was what was happening then. We were, they were smoking, and they were drinking, and they were calling each other baby. Paul, it is artifice. Walter Neff is just being a phony to himself. He's like, I'm a cool guy, baby. Yeah, he was acting that role. Here's something that someone brought up that I loved about that acting cool. Someone brought this to my attention. 
There's never an ashtray used in this film. People just ash on the floor the entire time. They said, once you see it, you can never unsee it. So if you've not watched Double Indemnity yet, watch how they just ash on the floor for the entire film. Wait, that was at Rolexter. And uh, I guess this is maybe why California has so many fires. Other people took issue with Barbara Stanwyck's blonde wig, which I think even Barbara Stanwyck took issue with Barbara Stanwyck's blonde wig. I like the wig because... It looks glamorous when you first see it, and then it looks kind of cheap and phony and terrible. I think that's what her character would do, kind of like that ankle bracelet. It could be sexy. It could also be tacky. Hmm. This woman is not supposed to be the most glamorously perfect woman on earth. She's a little cheap, you know? And and I hate hate calling women cheap, but she's designed to look a little bit, you know, like a transparent, I got it in Tijuana. She's not the most glamorous woman on earth. That's really interesting. I didn't ever think about it like that. I just thought they just got a bad wig. (laughs) So I'm glad (laughs) to know. It's a gloriously, perfectly bad wig. (laughs) Okay, baby, should we talk about this week's film? Yes, we should. Well, our challenge for this week's episode was we decided to be cruel. Again, and play a fuck, marry, kill game with the three leads of Singing in the Rain with Donald O'Connor, Gene Kelly, and Debbie Reynolds. And you know what? In the interest of fair play, after we play everybody's, we'll answer it ourselves. Singing in the Rain is one of my top films of all time, so I'm very excited for this question because I've actually thought of it before. Fuck Gene Kelly. Like, he was known as, like, a dictator on set, so I just want to fuck the power right out of him. Fuck Donald O'Connor because he seems to have the energy to spare. Mary Debbie Reynolds, just because I love her attitude. Fuck Gene Kelly, because he's super hot and he probably has some moves. Definitely Mary Debbie Reynolds, because then I get Carrie Fisher as my stepdaughter. Rad. Well, I'm gay, so I'm going to have to fuck Gene or Donald. Uh, they both have live dancers' bodies, but Donald's cuter, so I'll fuck him. I'll marry Gene because he's the richer movie star. I'd marry Debbie Reynolds because it'd be nice to see her with somebody who wouldn't cheat on her with Elizabeth Taylor. Gene Kelly is the most attractive man that was ever in a film. I would suck the hell out of that. Kill Gene Kelly partially due to the fact that he just mistreated Debbie Reynolds so much. Kill Gene Kelly. That bastard. Marry Debbie Reynolds because as a lesbian, I would like to spend the rest of my life with a woman. Um, fuck Gene Kelly because I'm gay but not blind uh, and kill Donald O'Connor because he's the only one that's left sorry Paul I would kill Gene Kelly I would fuck Debbie Reynolds and I would marry Donald O'Connor I'm pretty close to that actually why do we both want to marry Donald O'Connor I think he seems fun and light and I feel like you know what? You're in it for the long haul when you're married, so let's be with Donald O'Connor. Yeah. I just I love gingers. I think I'm actually going to copy you. I'm going to kill Gene Kelly, too, and I'm going to marry Debbie Reynolds because I watched that Debbie Reynolds-Carrie Fisher documentary that they made yeah. right before they died, and I just loved them, like, hanging out yeah. and having fun. And although I wouldn't want Debbie to be my mom, like, I could kick it with her for a while. I, could, I think we could have, like, <laughs> a, a good night. All right. Now it's time to cue the music and get into our feature presentation. Okay, Amy, number five on the AFI Top 100 Films of All Time list is, of course, Singing in the Rain, which came out in 1952. But is set in 1927. And is about a silent film production company and cast who are making the difficult transition from silent pictures to sound. And it stars Gene Kelly, Donald O'Connor, and, of course, Debbie Reynolds. But I think we have to give a special shout-out to Gene Hagen, who plays Lena Lamont, who I think is... 
kind of the glue of this movie in many respects. I love her. And we have to give a double shout out to Gene Kelly because he co-directed the film with Stanley Donen. And the writers were Betty Comden and Adolph Green. It's one of the most joyful films that I think I've ever seen. So much so that I was like, does this movie move to like number one on the list simply because <laughs> it's so like electric in so many ways? I don't know. There was something that washed over me in just watching this movie again. I was like, oh, everything, the way it's shot, the way it just looks and feels. Yeah, it's bright. It's technicolor. It's hyper technicolor. It's so colorful that when they're going and pretending to be shooting a scene from a black and white movie and it's like a dream sequence where Gene Kelly's dancing with a bunch of like hot gangsta chicks even all that is bright color which wouldn't even show up on the black and white film it is just designed to make you happy and I really like this film and it is not a neg to say that this film almost has no real conflict the conflict is so light yes. the conflict is so light I was layering singing in the rain in my head with the artist because they're similar both about right. like dudes trying to make the transition to sound and the artist has like sad dogs and houses burning down and really there's not a big problem in singing rain it is just happy and what I think is remarkable about that is it works. We don't have to have a moment where Gene Kelly's like, I'm going to lose my house. He jokes about it, but it's never really, it's never like anybody has doors. I'm like, my mom has cancer. It's well, just happy. I totally agree. And they have such an easy conflict that they could totally steer into, which is Don Lockwood and Lena Lamont are the famous couple on screen. And yet, immediately we find out that they are not a couple at all. They are almost... Uh, Don Lockwood does not like her at all. And Lena Lamont is living in this fantasy world where she believes that they are a couple, even though they don't kiss, they don't go home together, they don't do anything, which is a hilarious subplot. But you're right. I could see like a studio dude giving this script a note and being like, what if they're an ex-girlfriend? You know, because that would seem to make more logical sense. But then you get into the thing that always bothers me about films that are romantic triangle with a one really awful person involved in that triangle, which is why would this hero be dating them in the first place? They're a monster. Well, it's a great example of how you can actually create a fulfilling movie without falling into the trappings of, like, manufactured drama. And I think one of the reasons why this whole thing came together without it being kind of focused around drama was because Arthur Freed, who was a famous lyricist, uh, basically was like, hey, I wrote a bunch of stuff. Maybe we should just put all my classic songs together and make a movie out of it. Call it Singing in the Rain and go do it. Yeah, yeah. Freed was basically like... Songs first, then my title, which is my song. And then you guys have to fit all of this together. Good luck, Betty. Good luck, Adolf. You'll make it work. (laughs) Because this was Freed's story in a way. It's his most inadvertently autobiographical film. I guess it's weird to call it autobiographical if he didn't even write it, but he kind of commanded it. So it's sort of autobiographical. Because he was a guy who was there when movies turned musical. He was a guy who did the first musicals. And in fact, he put Singing in the Rain, his first original version, in a movie in 1929 um, called Hollywood Review of 1929. And it sounds totally different because the staging, when you see Singing in the Rain, the original silent version, this is a time, as we're going to see in the course of Singing in the Rain, we're only even learning what a camera can do in a musical. We're We're only even learning how to make this work. So his original staging of Singing in the Rain, when sound was still just two years old, was a bunch of stiff people standing under a giant arc, just literally singing in the rain, and that was it. Actually, I want you to listen to a little bit, and you're going to see a bunch of famous faces. (laughs) Yeah, it's basically just 
just a filmed stage with that giant 1929 coral. Yeah. By the way, if you look up that clip on YouTube, you're going to see young Joan Crawford. You're going to see Marie Dressler, who I really love. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're going to see Marion Davies, a.k.a. Citizen Kane Lady. And you're going to see Buster Keaton, who is standing there, not singing at all, not even pretending to move his lips. uh, Under contract (laughs) and under duress. Um, I was thinking about this last night. This is... The Rock of Ages or Mamma Mia of its time to a certain degree. It's like, let's get a bunch of songs that you like, throw them all together, and we will loosely thread a plot around this. I mean, I know there's other examples. Thank you for starting with Rock of Ages as a person who really loves Foreigner. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I think there's a real joy in this. And I think this is the the same idea that people have with Mamma Mia, too. It's a huge hit because I think you're going into it going, the singing and dancing is the most important part. And I like that. I, I think that it takes away a lot of the artifice of a musical. Um, and it's one of the musicals that I remember the most. And it's also one of the musicals that even this morning, as I was coming here, playing it on Spotify and just enjoying it. These are great, great songs. They are. But what's so interesting to really watch about it is the progression the musical makes from swing time all the way up to singing in the rain. I mean... Swing Time is a movie where they kept the camera still. Esther is like, watch me dance. And he films it kind of like this early clip we just saw where yeah. the camera's pretty still. It's just watching them. Gene Kelly is the guy who, when he co-directs Singing in the Rain, is like, what do I do about this camera? Because he came out of dancing on stages. And he thought when he first got to film, I can't capture the energy of my stage performance in movies. I look too flat. It doesn't work. So when he co-directs Singing in the Rain... It's amazing because what he's doing is moving this camera in and out and up and around. I was really impressed with his directing, and it felt like the first time in this podcast where you're seeing a real forceful camera. Like, you know, it it really feels like a part of the entire story. And it was interesting to me because I would also catch Gene Kelly going down the barrel a few times. Like – to the audience, which is something that you don't ever really see in film, except for like Ferris Bueller or Deadpool. He talks to the audience. It's in the beginning when he has that red carpet sequence and a certain dance numbers, it's to the audience of us. One of the stories I once heard about Don Johnson was someone said, Don, how do you keep the audience coming back for more? And he said, well, every now and then I'll just do a take right down the center of camera to make them know that I got my eyes on them and they got their eyes on me. And <laughs> God knows if they ever use that take, but I like that idea, and I feel like there was something about this where Gene Kelly is kind of is playing to the audience. Um, I loved it, and I realized also in watching this movie that most of my knowledge of like classic film comes from the Disney Great Movie Ride. Have you ever been on that at MGM Studios back in the day or no. now it's like Hollywood Studios? Basically, you get on this car and you go through Bubsby Berkeley movies, you go through Mary Poppins, but all these clips are a very big part of that ride. And I realized so many times as we're watching this, I'm like, oh, I know this from that, I know this from that, and it's more from going on a ride at Disney World than it is actually from seeing these films. I mean, I did go on the King Kong ride at Universal before I saw King Kong. I guess that (laughs) makes sense. (laughs) Well, I mean, I I ride the Fast and Furious ride every day at Universal just to get myself pumped up better than coffee. (laughs) But, I mean, you're kind of, you're hitting on something, which is that, This movie is very self-referential about its place in the history of movies. I mean, when this movie comes out in 1952, this change from the silent era was only 
35 years away. Right. People remembered it. I mean, the same, like, costumes and production designers they had in the silent era were, like, helping them here. They were taking out old props from the silent era and installing them back here. They found their old equipment boxes and what they looked like. They used them again because it wasn't that far away. And so they're able to do all these little in-jokes. You got Rita Moreno showing up as Zelda Xander's The Zip Girl, basically being your Clara Bow character, right. the It Girl. You've got the character Olga Mara, the, like, vixen-y, vampy thing with the black spidery cobwebs and sequins all over her, just playing her Theta Barra role. And it actually even came across in the costumes. Uh, the costume designer, Walter Plunkett, said that this is the most challenging work that he ever did. And he did Gone with the Wind because he thought that audiences in 1952 remembered Hollywood of the 20s more clearly than the Civil War. So he did 500 costumes of this film that all had to be period specific. Except I heard he made them just a little bit shorter, so it could be just a little bit sexier. <laughs> but in that same vein, there are so many Easter eggs that you would only know if you're a total classic film devotee in this year, in 1952. I mean, you know the girl who walks up and like is adjusting Lena's headdress and then just walks off the hairdresser? Yeah. That woman is an actress named Mae Clark, who is the girl who gets hit with a grapefruit in the face by Jimmy Cagney oh, in the movie Public Enemy. I mean, this was funny. Everybody was getting all these jokes left and right that you know, we might not always get today if we didn't know everything about silent film. It made me realize, watching it, how many movies have we done on this list that pertain to movies? Even something like Shawshank Redemption, like Rita Hayworth and them seeing that film, Gilda, is a part of that movie. You know, like what you said, the Academy likes to salute itself and Hollywood. I feel like this AFI list is also doing this. I would say out of the 12, 13 movies we've done, over 50% have an element about film. That's true. King Kong and even even the idea of shaping theater in uh, in shaping opera in Citizen Kane, there's always this thing about creating art and how hard it is and how maybe somebody's going to get eaten by a giant dinosaur. Yeah. It's it's uh, I, I found that to be really interesting and I think of film and commenting on film as a more recent thing. You know, the idea of like it's meta, but this is a meta film. I mean, it is making fun, tipping the hat, I think taking the piss out of Hollywood culture in many respects. It is because if there is a drama in Singing in the Rain, I would say the main thrust is can you be honest in Hollywood, period. Well, yeah. Because the Hollywood that we get set up with right from this very beginning premiere where Gene Kelly is talking about his childhood and giving this inspirational speech as Don Lockwood about how he grew up in high society and he went to fine arts conservatories. All the while he's giving this pretentious narration, the film is like, no, he hung out in bars, he did vaudeville, it was pool halls, and it's getting into the fakery of celebrity. A hundred percent, and I realized that there was a big similarity between this film and Mission Impossible, the first one. <laughs> So there's a crucial moment in Mission Impossible where John Voight is telling Tom Cruise what the plan was. And Tom Cruise is actually seeing that he's been double-crossed the entire time. I was like, that's so genius. I've never seen that done before. And clearly right here in the opening of Singing in the Rain, they're doing the same thing. A voiceover, but also letting the audience in that something else is happening. And I think maybe Brian De Palma was tipping his hat to Gene Kelly to begin Singing in the Rain. Please don't write me and tell me that I'm wrong. I know that I'm wrong. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's one of my favorite things that you do with film that I love to see people do, which is play with a gap between what we're seeing and what we're hearing. And I don't, I mean, eventually 
the die is going to land on Goodfellas and eventually he's going to get mad at me because I don't like that film. But one of the reasons, I'll just say it now really fast, is that the narration in that giant narration opening scene just tells you exactly what you're seeing. So it's like, what's the fucking point? They're not even having fun with it. Well, I think that that's what we liked about All About Eve, too. The narration plays this point where it's different people telling the story. Same thing with Citizen Kane. You're learning about characters and their points of view. You're right. This is exactly it. I feel like there's always been this kind of shrugging rule that narration sucks. Maybe narration just sucks when it's narrating exactly what you're seeing. Also, can we just talk about the opening scene? I felt like what a great way to introduce this world. And you've already talked about it a little bit. But you kind of set up all the characters and everything that you need to know roughly in the first minute and a half of this movie. With the exception of Debbie Reynolds, who comes in a little bit later. But it really just gives you Everything that you need to know in such a a small period of time. I, I found that this opening to be kind of wonderfully written and planned. And I think, you know, this movie is not a movie that's heavy on conflict, but I think when it does do dialogue, when it does tell a story, it briskly moves through. The movie's only an hour and 43 minutes, and it's a packed from tip to gills. What do you say? What is that? It, it just, it's just packed from start to finish. Yeah. God, it, there's a tiny bit of my brain when you watch even the woman running the red carpet who's like riffing on Luella Parsons, Luella Parsons, whose name keeps coming up yes. a million times again, I'm like, who would be our film critic journalist who gets to pop up? I'm always a little jealous that like Leonard Malton was in Gremlins 2. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love the idea that, you know, that she's on the red carpet narrating or, you know, I guess hosting a radio program of bringing people through. I, I, I didn't realize that that was part of the way that old Hollywood was, that there would be one person, not a line of reporters putting out different things for YouTube, uh, you know, channels and stuff like that. Yeah. What's your favorite color? Who's your best friend? Please <laughs> talk to me. Do this wacky stunt. Oh, by the way, that opening shot really fast, just that like, ta-da, here's the Chinese theater, is an actual shot from an old premiere. Oh, they wow. found old footage of a silent era premiere and then just put the name of this film on top of it. So let me ask you a question. doesn't really have to do with the movie, but... Who do you think is a bigger taskmaster? Is it Gene Kelly or is it Fred Astaire? Because watching this movie, I think I am more impressed. And I don't know if it's because of the camera work or the footwork, but I am more impressed by the performative nature of Gene Kelly than I was with Fred Astaire. And that's, I think there's something much more showman about Gene Kelly, but it also looks a little bit harder to me. That's a really interesting question because, yeah, they both have stories. I mean, Swingtime had just stories of Ginger Rogers' feet falling off. Yes. Singing in the Rain has stories of both Donald O'Connor being bedridden for three days after he had to shoot the Make Him Laugh dance. Well, twice I mean, because he had to reshoot it twice. It's and, like six days of bed rest. Well, I will say that to Gene Kelly's defense on the Donald O'Connor thing, Donald O'Connor was asked to kind of recreate this famous thing that he did as a kid, which is running up the walls. He did that as a child. He was very good at that. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I think, almost recreated the entire sequence on Saturday Night Live when he opened up the show. He can do that? Oh, he did the entire Make Him Laugh song as his monologue, and according to people online, pretty flawlessly. But uh, going back to Donald O'Connor, so he did this as a kid, running up the walls, but by the time of shooting this movie, he was smoking four packs a day. So he just didn't have the stamina for it. Like, he couldn't do it physically anymore. So to get up that hill uh, or that wall and to do all those spins on the floor, it, like, knocked him out. Okay, wait, Paul. I smoked zero packs of cigarettes. Yes. And I could not even 
do that. I would just run straight to the Oh, 100%. Bed. I'm not saying, but imagine doing, you would need bed rest for three days. Like we would be out of breath for a little bit, but if you're doing four packs a day and then running up walls and then spinning on the floor and getting like terrible rug burn. Since we are just pitting Esther and Kelly against each other right up at the top, I want to play a clip from the very first time they danced together. This was in 1946 in a film called The Ziegfeld Follies. Uh, and them dancing together was such a big deal in this number, The Babbitt and the Bromide, that the entire movie is about how these guys are super awkward to have to even hang out with each other. Uh, Fred Astaire, hello. Right, hello. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I, I can't quite place you. Uh, what line of business are you in? Well, uh, I dance. Oh, at home for the folks, uh, picnics and that kind of thing? Oh, no, no, in public. On street corners. Oh, oh, no, on the screen, motion pictures. Oh, oh. Uh, you do go to pictures that have dancing in them, don't you? Why, well, I, I try to see them all. I go oh, as often oh, as did I you can. see a picture called Cover Girl? Yes. Well, who did all the dancing in that? You're not Rita Hayworth. <laughs> no, I'm not. Ginger. <laughs> and you know what? I think I may have the last time they ever worked together. It's uh, for a little airline called Western Air. Take a listen. Hey, if you could move those famous legs a little, a fellow might be able to sit down. Well, if it isn't Mr. Kelly. Watch your steps, Sonny Boy. These are new shoes. Sonny Boy? <laughs> I gotta say, you're looking pretty turned out, kid. Not bad for over on the road. <laughs> uh, you know, Fred... You never stop traveling in style. Oh, come see what it's like to travel in style on the Western Airlines. It's the only way to fly. <laughs> so that went a little bit stiffer in their final performance together. No dancing at all. Not even trying to dance. Just just charming men flying. Okay, but you know where I think Kelly does have the advantage over a stare mm-hmm. is I think they're both punishing on the human body. Yes. But I think Kelly had more of an eye of what cinema was and what cinema should do. Because, I mean, Gene Kelly, when he does the singing in the rain tap dance number here, not only is he like, we'll get some water, we'll make it look like night, there'll be, you know, some splashing. He looks at this street and he says, we're going to need puddles. And he has them repave the roads that literally puddles exactly where he wants them to be. That's the kind of crazy detail that you need. But then maybe Fred Astaire is the nicer guy because apparently Gene Kelly was so rough on Debbie Reynolds that she one day just started crying under a piano so nobody would see her. Oh, yeah. And Fred Astaire was like, hey, come out. Come watch me do a film right now. I'm right next door. You'll see how stressed out I am, and then you'll feel better about how hard this is. Well, because, again, talking about bleeding feet, Debbie Reynolds also had bleeding feet, and they would do things over and over and over again. Debbie Reynolds, not a dancer, uh, but he was so hard on her choreography that you cannot tell. And I knew this going into the film that she wasn't a dancer, and I watched her extra closely just to see if I could see anything. And she is pretty flawless. But then you realize, like, a simple scene like... um, Good Morning, where they do that couch flip, that was done over 45 times because it all needed to be synced up perfectly. If one person was out of order, and I was realizing it is so syncopated that one thing off would make the tableau kind of go away. And I can imagine how frustrating that would be to a performer, and especially someone who's not a dancer. It's like, why would you cast me in this movie? Well, that Gene Kelly was like, why would you cast her in this movie? He was so mad about it. Well, I, according to Gene Kelly's third and final wife, as she's called, she he wanted her. He really he wanted her. He says that now. Right. I'm like, there's so much backstory here that we do not know because 
I feel like everyone puts on a real smiley face. I watched Donald O'Connor talk about this movie. I watched Debbie Reynolds talk about this movie, and everything is smiles and, and just like, oh, we had the best time. Ha, ha, ha. Rita Moreno, oh, so great. I think these people were miserable. I think they were so upset. I mean, Debbie Reynolds was basically like Gene Kelly was so fucking mean to me all the time. I mean, there's a, in the romantic scene they have where he's – Probably my favorite number where they're dancing around the very barren set and he sets the lights and he leans against the ladder. She had been chewing gum right before one of those takes and got nervous and just stuffed her her gum under the ladder. He leaned against it, got his hair caught in the in the gum and screamed at her so much. She said she never chewed gum again. And then she had to go and like swoon and act like they're all happy, which makes you realize that they were tremendous actors. Oh, absolutely. They were just, I mean, they are, they are, she is Lena Lamont. I mean, because not only is her voice replaced in the film, but her taps are replaced in the film. I mean, she is a body. She's great in this movie. And I love Debbie Reynolds. And I actually remember like seeing this movie for the first time being, Ooh, who's this woman? She's beautiful and she's funny and she's great. She's got those great rain hats, um, which, by the way, I want to get why those rain hats were ever functional. Like, it's like it's almost like a, a swim cap. It's like that is going to mat down your hair. I don't understand the, the benefit of that. Yeah. And her boots in that very, very opening right when the credits start. I'm like, those are all wedged down around your ankles. Aren't they just going to fill up like buckets? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, we're, I don't want to be sounding like we're bagging on Demi Olds. I know no, we're not. But we're just not. as like Debbie Backstory. Debbie mm-hmm. Backstory. Debbie Backstory. Debbie Backstory. Debbie Reynolds. She's a Burbank girl. She decides to run for a beauty contest in Burbank, not because she wanted to win, but because they had a bunch of cool prizes. She gets up there. She says, hey, guys, I don't have any talent. I just wanted to win a bunch of prizes. And they're like, you're great. So she wins. There's talent scouts in the audience, and they're immediately like, this is a comedian. So they fold her into Hollywood. Um, Right away, when she's this teenager, she gets these two adorable parts into musicals, being a person who really is just charming. That was her main gift that she had. And I brought two clips of them. In the first one, you're right, she's totally Lena Lamonting. So she makes her debut in this musical, Three Little Words, where she's lip-syncing Helen Kane, who did, I think, the voice for Betty Boop. And so she's clearly not singing any of the words here, but what she's doing is just being hilarious. She's singing this to a man, and if you can picture it while you're hearing her saying, she's untucking his shirt, she's twisting it in knots, she's snapping his bow tie, she's being pouty, and she's so great that this movie gets her voted New Star of the Year. I want to be loved by you, just you, and nobody else but you. I want to be loved by you, And then she does this movie that same year called Two Weeks with Love, where she actually does sing. And Jane Kelly later was like, it was this song that made me want to put her in Singing in the Rain. Maybe, maybe true. Maybe not. Uh, but she sings it on her own. It's called Abadaba Honeymoon. And it becomes a giant hit. But that was really all she had in her resume before this. Let's listen to a little bit of Abadaba Honeymoon. All night long they chatter away. All day long they were happy and gay, swinging and singing in the honky-tonky way. Abba-dabba-dabba-dabba-dabba-dabba means chmunk, I love you. Abba-dabba-dabba in monkey talk means chimp, I love you too. Then the big baboon one night in June, he married them and very soon, they went upon their abba-dabba honey. And Gene Kelly saw this and said, I am going to cast her and replace her <laughs> voice. Um, but yeah, so she starts singing in the rain one day after she turns 19. And what so, she brings is just charm. And by the way, when you hear Debbie Reynolds say it, 
She always says 17. And then all the factual research I did was 19. But she was still living at home with her parents. I mean, I'm 17. I totally get it. A hundred percent. She beats out people like Judy Garland and June Allison. And I think the movie is different with both of those people because there's something about Debbie Reynolds that is different. And I don't know if it's different and it's leading the change of this in 1952. And then I heard Damien Chazelle talk about Debbie Reynolds and Singing in the Rain. And he articulated it perfectly. Take a listen to Damien talk about what makes Debbie Reynolds so good. Debbie Reynolds especially, I think, and not just in that movie, but in every movie she did, there's... uh, it was something Emma and I talked a lot about, and Emma was watching and rewatching a ton of Debbie Reynolds stuff uh, specifically. You know, talk about naturalism, doing these uh, these musicals or these old Hollywood movies full of sets and costumes where it feels like there should be no room for naturalism at all, and yet she feels completely. You feel like you know her. You watch *Singing in the Rain*. You feel like you've met her. You've had a, uh, uh, you know you've had a meal with her, you've had a conversation with her. It's, there's no distance. It feels completely, and we're talking there about a movie that was made, what, you know, like 60, 70 years ago, and it still feels that way. And, and I was like, oh, that's exactly what it is. We relate to her because she feels less than the big stars, and she's being brought into this world the way we talked about in All About Eve, about, you know, the way that Karen was kind of an outsider. Here's an outsider who's kind of brought in and fully brought in. Yeah, her energy is just the energy of this film. And, and you, the way you're describing her now, being this outsider brought in, it makes me think of that scene where she meet-cutes Don Lockwood when he jumps into her car to escape a bunch of fans. What she's wearing in that scene in the car, I find so unusual because she's wearing probably the ugliest shade of brown that exists on the planet Earth. <laughs> it's like they were like, what is the most banal, gray, unflattering, sparrow shade of brown we can put our giant ingenue in her big debut and in the first big scene, and they pick that. So she just gets better and more beautiful and brighter. And in the moment, right before he starts singing in the rain, he looks at her and he says, the sun is shining, and she's wearing this yellow raincoat, and you just feel that she's blossoming and her light is radiating on him. But they hide it first to let it come forth, like her bursting out of a cake wearing pink. Oh, my gosh. Color is a part of this movie unlike any other film. I mean, what they do in this movie, it feels like a comic book in certain points. It just, you know, even the number with Sid Charisse when she's in this green dress, it's, it, it, it feels more vibrant than anything that you're seeing nowadays. It, it just, he captured something, and that's Technicolor, I, I imagine. But, but it's also this comfort with embracing non-naturalism. Mm-hmm. With embracing saturism and, oh, my God, that shot of Sid Suri not smoking, as I guess we're now talking about in this whole podcast. Yeah. Still seeing that smoke come out of her nostrils in that first shot, I was like, oh, my God, I get why people vape. Well, I mean, Sid Charisse in this movie shouldn't even really be there, right? Because it makes no sense. I want to talk about that last number. I love this movie. I just said at the beginning, I think this should go high on the list. So don't come at me because uh, I'm slagging on a little plot point. But at the end of the movie, when they're showing the film executive uh, the film and and the guy's like, this is great. We just need one more number. And he's like, here's the number. And basically Gene Kelly describes a number that makes no sense in what we are led to believe this movie is about. I'm fine with that. But then also describes this like scene between him and this person who is not even supposed to be in this film. I mean, it should have been Lamont, but it really should have been Debbie Reynolds, but Debbie Reynolds couldn't do the dancing that Sid Charisse did. Sid Charisse gets this really beautiful, wonderful dance performance only simply because Debbie Reynolds couldn't. 
Yeah, but it's so beautiful. Oh. That long white veil she's got on in the lavender background where the where the radiant stripes of pink are almost looking like this 80s sunset, sunset picture you might see oh, in a yeah. motel somewhere. And he's in the solid black and the, the way this, her veil wraps around his body, it is unreal. I was trying to think how they did that. And I was like, is it all fans? Is it being puppeteered? Because it's so wonderful. And again, I love watching a movie that was made in 1952 and going, how did they do that? It was giant airplane fans. And they breathed, they breathed, they breathed. Did you know fans breathe? Oh, wow. They blasted? I don't know. Yeah, blasted. Blasted air so hard that it made it really tough for Gene Kelly to pick her up because they added to this gravity in the air. And the scene got so hard. I love how actually they do this extra layer of surreal thing where she starts off with one veil and then it gets even longer. They're just like, watch it go. You know, Breen from the production code who keeps popping up lately Mm -hmm. because we've been doing this like string of 40s and 50s movies really was nervous about all of these Sid Charisse dance numbers because she's so carnal. She's so sexy. The way she places her legs far apart, he was like, I don't even know if y'all are going to get away with this. So this was them pushing the limit of sexiness as far as they could. Well, they still cut it. And he actually did push it too far because if you watch that ballet sequence, there is a small snip where apparently uh, Sid Charisse wrapped her legs around Gene Kelly and that had gone too far. It was too sexually suggestive, even though Gene Kelly argued this is a ballet move. But when Sid Charisse did it, it did not seem like a ballet move. (laughs) Also, one of my favorite moments in the very beginning of that dance is just when he walks into the room of other extras and he's like, I got to dance. And they just all yell, got to dance at him. Oh. And it's this zombie spell. You get the sense of all these hungry people trying to make it in Hollywood becoming mindless. There's this there's this kind of sadness to that scene. Really? Although, like, I thought there was, like, this idea that, like, everyone is feeling it, but he's the only one that's articulating it. And that's what makes the artist the artist because we all have this creativity inside. But the person who says, I have to do this, is inspiring to the other ones there. Wow, I always took it as fame just works or doesn't, everybody wants it. Oh, interesting. But you are in agreement. I could I could not find negative reviews of Singing in the Rain. Right. They kind of never existed. It came out and everybody was like, it's pretty good. Right. And then as the years went on, they're like, no, it's great. It's actually great. <laughs> but it started off high and got higher. But Variety had just one throwaway line in their otherwise rave review where they said, Broadway melody is imaginatively conceived and executed, but it runs a bit too long. The ballet in it, bit in it could be eliminated. But Citrice gives Kelly a fine assist. Wow. That was their only quote. <laughs> you know, I also noticed a little callback to uh, All About Eve in the sense that at the end of this number, he's just performed his heart out. And then all of a sudden, a little nebbishy version of him comes in and goes, gotta dance. And then... Boom, it starts all over again. Well, if we're going to do the callback to Eve, you know who's in Singing in the Rain as well? A little extra called Best Flowers from Double Indemnity and All About Eve. Now, I think she knows where she is. I'm not 100% sure. I was freeze-framing it, staring at it. So if you're watching Singing in the Rain and you're now a Best Flowers head, find the Best Flowers in this garden and tell us where she is. I want to know if I'm right or wrong. Before we leave this number, because it really is, I mean, it's, Every element of it looks like a painting coming to life. I mean, it is just beautifully drawn out, and the lighting is amazing. I just remember looking at those people at the tables when Sid Charisse and Gene Kelly are dancing the first time in that red room. Just, I I could stare at this as singular images. It's so beautiful. But I thought the most nerve-wracking part 
especially knowing how tough Gene Kelly is, is watching those mobsters who have to flip that coin because they don't have to dance, but they got to flip that coin and they got to catch it all the time. And the coin's very big and that coin is popping around. Sid Charisse even pops a coin over to Gene Kelly. I was like, oh, that would be me. And I'd be so, like, I, I would fuck up, like, the number that had gone on perfectly. And I was like, I just, I put myself in the position of those mobsters going, this is the most stressful position in this entire movie. <laughs> okay, wait, then before we leave the scene again then, we can't cut out the scene. Look at how much we want to talk about it. Yeah. That one mobster has a giant scar on his face. Yes. Did you notice that Gene Kelly has a little scar on his face? No. Yeah, he does. On his little cheek, he has a tiny little crescent scar because when he was six, he was riding his tricycle and he fell. And makeup artist was like, let me cover that over for you. And he was like, no. So when you watch Singing the Grain, you can watch a guy who's like, I got a scar. Deal with it, Hollywood. Wow. And also, Very I did Harrison Ford of him. <laughs> I didn't pull this clip, but the Sid Charisse scarf dance number does show up in a Simpsons in an episode where Mr. Burns has an affair with a Democratic congressman. They get transported to the scarf number and we see the scarf wrap around Mr. Burns. Clearly, that's a very visual Simpson clip, yeah. so we can't really play that. But is there one that maybe has a little bit more of a vocal <laughs> quality to it? There's two. Let's start with the literally vocal one. This is where their Arnold Schwarzenegger character... Rainier Wolfcastle takes diction lessons. Up and at em. Up and at them. Up and at em. Up and at them. Up and at em. Up and at them. <laughs> but then there's an even bigger one. This is from an episode about toxic rain. Good Lord, acid rain. I'm singing in the rain. I'm just singing in the rain. What a glorious feeling. Ah! It burns like a Glasgow bikini wax. <laughs> I enjoyed that. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm going to make a big statement here. I know singing in the rain is the number. That's the number. That's what has been uh, immortalized uh as a matter of fact, in the great movie ride, which as I referenced, they do a whole animatronic recreation of that number. But I'm going to say I don't think it's the best number in the film. What would you say is? I think Make Em Laugh is hands down a better number than Singing in the Rain. Gene Kelly's ghost is going to kill you for picking one that he's not in. Because what he is doing, I know we talked about it a little bit earlier, Donald O'Connor is killing himself in that number. It is so funny. It's a great song. And it is, to me, so much more impressive to be balancing comedy, dance, and singing in a way that I don't think I can compare it to anything that I've ever seen. Yeah, his dance partner in that is just gravity. He's fighting the air around him. The air is, like, pressing him down, pushing him back. He makes it palpable. And apparently this dance number came about of a lot of the bits that Donald O'Connor would do on set. Like, that whole thing with the, the dummy on the couch was just something he was doing in the spare time to make different people a laugh. And Gene Kelly was like, you should do that. And he's like, do what? And he's like, remember the thing with the dummy? He's like, oh, okay, great. And they did that entire sequence where he throws the dummy behind the couch, jumps up, the dummy is up. All in one take, just this idea that he just is kind of riffing and improvising this entire number. I rewound that scene. I love it so much. It's one of the original songs in the film, but 
I actually found this thing. It's from Cole Porter's 1948 musical, The Pirate, and it's called Be a Clown. Let me know if you hear any musical similarities. Be a clown, be a clown. All the world loves a clown. Act a fool, play the calf. And you'll always have the last laugh. Wear the cap and the bells. I mean, that's pretty crazy. That is pretty much make them laugh. It's called Be a Clown. (laughs) Same person. That's Gene Kelly singing it. I just love it there. It's an original. It's an homage. An homage. (laughs) By the way, I don't want to bring down the world a little bit, but maybe this is a moment that Arthur Freed kind of sucked. Can I I just say that? Really? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, Arthur Freed actually got me too in the recent era. People have been writing about it. Um, Shirley Temple mentioned this first in her biography that she was taken to his office um, when he was working on The Wizard of Oz. She was 11 years old. Uh, and Arthur Freed was like, you got to get rid of your baby fat. And then he stood up and he took out his penis. Um, and she laughed. She'd never seen one before. Whoa. And she ran out of the room. Uh, that happened. Um, wow. Also, uh, a dancer who's still alive, Barry Chase, who danced with Fred Astaire. Um, Fred Astaire comes across like a gentleman in many stories about yeah. this era. Uh, Barry Chase did a screen. She was supposed to do a screen test with Gene Kelly. Before she did a screen test with Gene Kelly, she had to meet with Freed. And Freed just picks up her hand and he puts it on his cock. And it was half erect, she says. And she said, ah, no. And she just got up and left. And then a week later, he was like, come back, come back. Arthur Freed wants to talk to you again. So Arthur Freed brought her back in. And then he walked up behind her and he just put his hands on her boobs. And then she never got the screen test. Uh, And then um, when she did run into Gene Kelly later, uh, he said, you know, kid, you got to learn to go around the world. So interpret that Whoa. as you will. Jeez, around but the Fred Astaire. After that, was like, "You're gonna dance with me," and then they had some great fun. So Astaire, gotta love him. Amy, let's chat. Have you used HelloFresh? I know they sent us some delicious stuff. Have you opened it up? Have you cooked? With the HelloFresh ingredients. I ate all of it. I ate everything. I ate the chicken pineapple quesadilla. I ate the bechamel cheeseburger. I have to say, out of every food delivery service that I've ever tried, this is hands down the best. And I want to say it's the best because of the ease of it and the deliciousness that it produced. I made these... Uh, vegetable quesadillas. Um, I'm vegetarian um, for the most part, and they sent me all the veggie stuff, and it was so delicious. I made these sandwiches and these quesadillas. I cooked for everyone, and people were so impressed with my cooking, and I have to say, thank you, HelloFresh, because the instructions were so easy to follow that I actually made two meals simultaneously, and this couscous Oh, summer couscous, so good. Yeah, I actually didn't know that it was so easy to make kale chips. And now I feel like I can make kale chips. Kale chips was one of my things. It went with the burger. You know, you balance out the cheeseburger with a little bit of the kale because I do eat meat. Uh, But I love vegetables. So it was awesome. I mean, HelloFresh comes in three plans. There's a classic like me for the meat eaters. There's a veggie for Paul. Um, And there's a family. That's for many. I actually did veggie family. Veggie family. That was just kind of great because we had it for the entire family. And every meal takes about 30 minutes to prepare, which is fantastic because we don't have that much time to do it. We have shows to catch up on. We have movies to watch. And... um, If you're really pressed for time, they even have a 20-minute meal on the classic menu every week. Um, I just think what I love about this service is that it makes me fall in love with cooking 
over and over again because I love to do it and I hate the shopping of it and not having all the right ingredients and everything's right there. And that just gets me out of the gate so much quicker. And the ingredients are so fresh. They're delicious. It's convenient and not a chore. Yeah, and what HelloFresh does to make it easier for you is that every week you can choose your delivery date to match your schedule. So it's not like, oh, my God, when is it showing up? How do I do it? And you can pause deliveries really simple when you're on vacation. It was awesome, man. I'm hungry now. I'm, I know. I want to go back home and make some more HelloFresh. Here's the deal. For a total of $60 off, that's $20 off your first three boxes. And they're actually bags. And that's what I love about it, too. Uh, visit HelloFresh.com slash Unspooled60. That's U-N-S-P-O-O-L-E-D 60. And enter the code Unspooled60. You know, when you do the math, that's like getting six meals for free, Paul. Yeah, that's not bad. So visit HelloFresh.com slash Unspooled60 and enter the code Unspooled60 to get six free meals. All right, so Paul, let's bring in a tap expert. Let's bring in a tapper. Let's bring in somebody who's doing new things with tap. And who better than our guest today, who you might have seen on So You Think You Can Dance. She was also featured in Dance Spirit Magazine's Top 20 hot tappers under 20. And I think I uh, found her by this uh, amazing Star Wars medley that she did, uh, where she did like tap percussion solos and singing. It's awesome. We'll put a link on our uh, little page here. Check it out. Please welcome Sarah Reich. Okay, so Sarah, the only dance movie we've done to date so far was Swing Time with Fred Astaire. Nice. I was wondering, is there a difference between the way that Fred dances and Jean dances? Very much so. And they were both very popular at the exact same time, so people like to compare them. Fred Astaire's style is very classy, very classic swinging style. Both of them could swing pretty well. This is the era of swing anyway. Uh, Gene Kelly, however, was more of the, like, cool Joe guy who is more of your day-to-day cat, you know, like in an American of Paris, he plays a painter. And so he's a little bit more casual and he's a little bit more lower to the ground. So you'll see him in a little bit more of a plie, more bend knees uh, and low to the floor. Whereas Fred Astaire had uh, some training in ballroom. So he had a little bit more of an up, a nice upper body carriage uh, and with more partner work with Ginger Rogers and Eleanor Powell and Suchery. So... So were people at the time trying to make a rivalry out of them? Possibly. Uh, there's always that question of like, who is better, Fred or Gene? Or who do you like the most, Fred or Gene? You know, but that's but, like one of those questions where it's sort of like they seem so individual. I mean, yeah. even though it's like they're under the same umbrella, but they can be very different. Exactly. Yeah. Both of them were actors, singers and dancers, could tap dance super well. Well, so you're here for a tap festival and you've been going to tap festivals all summer. I'm wondering, like, at a tap festival... Is it overdone to do a number from Singing in, Ra- in the Rain? Is it like doing Don't Stop Believing at Karaoke? <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Tap dancers, we love our history. We love our masters and our, our elders, and we cherish anything that's been done before. So so going back to Fred Astaire, I just recently set uh, the duet that Fred Astaire and Eleanor Powell did in uh, Broadway Melody of 1940 to begin the begin. I said on a couple of students of mine, so we've we've been reviving that. And I was just at the Orange County Tap Festival and at the student showcase where the students get to perform. A, a young man did a rendition of Singing in the Rain, surprisingly enough, with an umbrella. But he added a little dab at the end and like kind of made it really very current. And I thought it was hysterical. So you know, we do we do love to give a nod to our our legacy. I'd like to talk about the idea of how you get into tap. Like, 
on YouTube, there's all these like dance videos and things mm-hmm. like that. Like, are you finding that that is opening the door to people to find tap or is tap kind of a, a more niche kind of art? Like where does tap fall right now in the mm. modern pantheon of dance? It's, it's a little bit of both, okay. a little bit of both. The, the good thing is we do have social media mm-hmm. there, you know, and there's been ups and downs throughout the decades, but now what's so great is that, for example, I tap with a band called Postmodern Jukebox and it's a YouTube famous band. Scott Bradley, who is the creator, can just put up a camera in his living room and play some songs, a a cover of a pop song, but done jazzy or ragtime or how it would sound in the 1940s, like Justin Bieber in the 1960s, Lady Gaga in the 1920s. What would that sound like? And so with these cover videos, they've all gone viral and he's got millions of subscribers and I'm thankful to be a part of this journey with him. We would like to have a lot more opportunities to perform. You know, there are amazing tap dancers all over the world and they are extremely skilled this the level of tap dance skill wise has increased tremendously over the decades and now these guys are just on fire and i really hope that there are more opportunities for them to be seen and perform i mean i have seen one of your videos and you are tap dancing to push it i created that beat right that mm, get get Yeah, right. So tap can be also very extremely musical. Uh, You know, as tap dancers, we are dancers and musicians as percussionists. So like what I'm working on right now and I'm releasing very soon is my first, my debut album that showcases tap dance and original songs written stemming from tap rhythms. Oh, wow. That's really, that's amazing because you're basically creating your beat and then singing on top of it. Exactly. Wow. So it's not dancing with music. It's making the music. It's creating the, the music. Yeah. And then building an arrangement and structure around that to then showcase tap dance. I know that you look back and, and of course, you know, uh, appreciate what has come before you. Sure. But does it feel stale when you look at it now? Not at all. Really? Okay. No, not at all. Those guys were so amazing. They were innovators of the time. They are the classic version of what tap dance is. So we constantly look back and steal steps and want to be like them still. They were just amazing. And, and the, the competition then was extremely fierce because tap was so popular that you had to be innovative. It couldn't be like, oh, you tap dance? Great. What else do you do? Everyone tap dances. Right. Oh, I tap and I sing. Great. Everyone can tap and sing. What else can you do? I, can, I tap, sing, and do acrobatics. I can tap and jump rope. I can tap on roller skates, which Gene Kelly actually did in a few movies. So amazing. So watching videos of the 1930s and 40s, you're just like, wow. And then the sets for these films, Busby Berkeley's films and 42nd Street and I mean, it just was really amazing. I, I wish we could get back to those times. And We heard that Fred Astaire would put the taps in later. Yes. So that, yeah, so is that, you know, so is that something that you have to do in film? In film, yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, is so that they, it had to be, no, it's just, you just have to have it choreographed. Okay. You know, but I do know that Gene Kelly, like Fred Astaire, were perfectionists. Yeah. And they had to have it right. They loved uh, doing one take, one long take to showcase that they could really do it yeah. and that they've been really practicing and there's not that many cuts. Gene Kelly was extremely influential in in filmmaking. He was the first to uh, do a film with animation. Oh, right. With, with yeah. Jerry from Tom and Jerry. Yeah. He did a whole duo with him. And Talk about like the like the introduction of like women into tap. Has that always been because I feel like a lot of the people that we see tap through in the big way, like when I grew up, like Savion Glover was like a big mm. like that was the guy and Gregory Hines. Right, like, right. But like, is it always been the case that women are working as frequently as men or is it something that has kind of come in later on? Possibly a little bit later on, because okay. back in the day, women were more, were more likely to be chorus girls. 
right? Within mm-hmm. a line of 16 women, all dressed the same, doing the same choreography and high heels. And and that was kind of the, the, the struggle for women is like, man, everyone wants, expects me to be in high heels. Um, so That's it wasn't true. until as much the, as I love Busby Berkeley, his women are just standing still a lot of the time or yeah, like raising I mean, an arm. Very much so. And so for the women then, all the guys said, well, go put your high heels on and put your skirt on. So right. there was a lot of that going on, but not until the late 70s were women starting to wear flat shoes. Um, but there were some women back then. Juan, Juanita Pitts uh, was one of the main women who decided to wear a suit, a tuxedo suit and flat shoes. What is the most impressive number to you in Singing in the Rain? Like when you look at the uh, film. Donald O'Connor. Yeah. Make he, him laugh. He's And that number is amazing. It's amazing. I feel like when you're looking at like a Gene Kelly, it's like there's a pressure like it's got to be this and you're judging it that way. But I feel like Donald O'Connor gets to do Actually, something that's a lot more fun. It's or, a lot yeah. more fun, yeah. And his, you get to really see the versatility of him as an actor. And he even plays piano in the film. And yeah. I just love Make Him Laugh. And you even see elements of breakdancing, like early breakdancing, like that floor movement he does. Yeah. And he's so silly and fun. And I just love that number. I almost want to cry after I watch it because it's so brilliant. <laughs> is it cheating to have a prop like an umbrella? Or is it just like an extra badass thing you're doing? Extra badass thing to do. I don't think it's cheating. I think, if anything, it's more of a challenge to have an umbrella and a prop to use and, and things like that. And the way he uses it is just brilliant. I heard that actually when they were filming Singing in the Rain, they were filming it at MGM Studios in Culver City, which is funny. I grew up down the street from oh, wow. the studios on Madison Avenue. And um, apparently he had a fever and was shooting this scene and had this like wool oh. suit and was trying to keep it together throughout that whole scene. Um, and also I heard that the water, there was a water shortage in Culver city because they were using so much water to film <laughs> that scene. And you kind of came up and, you know, you exploded, you were, you know, one of these like was top 20 tap dancers under 20, right? <laughs> I, 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 like what, what was that? Like, how was your trajectory? Like, how did you fall into that? When did you get started and how did you know, that you had the goods to a certain level. I mean, were you going to a tap festival and get discovered? What happened? In a sense, I mean, I've, I'm very fortunate. I grew up, I'm born and raised here in Los Angeles, okay. and I had some of the best teachers in the world. Paul Kennedy, Jason Samuel Smith, Chloe Arnold of the Syncopated Ladies was one of my mentors, and Harold Cromer, who was a legendary uh, song and dance man of vaudeville times, um, and so on and so forth, studying, because I, I grew up at these festivals. So I got, I got all those sample platters. I right. learned from the best. And I was in the front row, ready and hungry and excited to learn everything. Well, and mm-hmm. one more technical question. You know, there's so many great scenes in Singing in the Rain of Donald O'Connor and mm-hmm. Gene Kelly dancing in sync. Like, when you're dancing in sync with mm-hmm. another person, how on earth are you doing that? <laughs> well, you have timing, you know, as long as you're all you're staying in time and you learn the choreography together, you, that's it. Are you listening more to the music? Or are you listening more to the other everything? Person? You have to be aware of everything at all times. I know we talked about it a little bit before. Uh, tell us a little bit about your album. The album is called New Change. I've been working on it for about four years. I've been collaborating with phenomenal musicians here in Los Angeles, and pretty much just saying, "Hey, friend." whether you're a sax player, pianist, cellist, whatever, let's get in a room and I'm going to scat to you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to improvise a rhythm and then I'm going to scat to you. So kind of like singing the rhythm right. uh, in a form of melody. And I want you to just repeat it back to me. And then from there, we're just going to build and build and build and then build a structure like the way you would build any song structure. Um, 
and we'll write music in that form. And that's kind of how most of the songs have started. This sounds amazing. We're going to play a little clip of it, but I also want people to follow you. And where can they follow you? you? Yeah, Uh, On Instagram, at Sourtaps, S-O-U-R-T-A-P-S. Also at Tap Music Project, which is the... This whole experiment of the tap music, I'm calling yeah. it, um, as well as sarahreich.com, S-A-R-A-H-R-E-I-C-H.com. Well, this is great. And now I'm so excited to listen to a little sample from this album, Thank which you. is available wherever you can listen to your music, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, let's, uh, let's take us out with that. <laughs> Thank you. podcast that I just was on that I really love the premise of, and I wanted to tell our audience and you about it. It's called Movie Crush. Uh, Every Friday, Chuck Bryant of Stuff You Should Know sits down for a deep dive conversation with people across the entertainment industry about their life as it relates to film, their career, and most importantly, their favorite all-time movie. I think you can learn a lot by people's favorite all-time movie. What's your favorite all-time movie, Amy? Maybe Pennies from Heaven. Yeah, really? Pennies from Heaven. Definitely Pennies from Heaven. Really? Tap dancing. Yes. Wow. I did not know that. Well, uh, I would love to hear you on this show, but in lieu of that, you can listen to great people like Tony Shalhoub talking about The Sting or Tig Notaro talking about Mask. I talked about Beverly Hills Cop. David Diggs talked about Get Out. Kevin Pollack, The In-Laws. John Hodgman about The Avengers. Not the Marvel one, I'm sure. And... Uh, Here's the thing. Every one of these talks aren't just about movies. They're about life and how movies influence us from our childhood on, you know, what is it about our favorite movie that we can go back to it again and again? Like for you, Amy, Pennies for Heaven, what is the favorite scene? What's the one that sticks out to you? Oh, I love all the scenes where Steve Martin dances because you just see a guy who's maybe not a natural dancer dancing. And in that, to me, it hits what movies do. They inspire a normal person to do something great. I love it. Well, listen to Movie Crush to find out more about people's crushes. Find Movie Crush wherever you get your favorite shows every Monday and Friday. And every Monday is a mini crush where they dive into various fun movie-related segments culled from the listeners themselves. I'm glad we had Sarah here. And I know we talked a little bit about Debbie Reynolds uh, not being a dancer. But did you know that later in her life, uh, her and Donald O'Connor made a How to Tap video? No. Take a listen to this. It's on YouTube. <laughs> Good to see you, Debbie Thank Reynolds. Thank you, my darling. Thank oh, you. Happy me, to be here. Thank you, my love. You're teaching everybody tap? I am. We've got the greatest people out there. They were just waiting for you, though. Oh, yes, sir. Here we are. We do Singing in the Rain 2. <laughs> 40 years later. That's right. Remember any of those steps we did from the movie? I mostly remember the ones that Gene drilled and drilled, and that was from Good Morning. Your Good Morning number. The, uh, well, it was all different kinds of steps. Right. You want me to start yeah. it Can off? Can we still remember it? I, well, let's try it. Hit it. I'll, I'll, I'll count it off. Five, six, seven, eight. All right. He remembers better than I do. Make a one. That's it. <laughs> 
<laughs> the equanimity with which she says drilled and drilled. <laughs> There's a whole lifetime in that drilled and drilled. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that now she is teaching a tap dancing <laughs> video, a home video. Well, that's how Gene Kelly actually got his start. His mom really? made him take dance classes, him and his brother Fred, when he was a kid, and he hated it. Because the kids would call him a sissy for taking dance classes. Oh, wow. And he would get into fights on his way to dance class until his mom was like, I'm going to take you there by cab. Um, he considered himself just more of an athlete. He was like a jock. He started to do acrobatics. He did roller skating. And then he had to go back to dancing to feed his family during the Depression. Well, it's interesting because he really does take that hit in the stunt scene when he is the um, the cowboy. I mean, the other scenes are, are for comedic effect. but. He that's all in one take when he flies over the bar. I was like, whoa, he really is acrobatic. Yeah, he really is an athlete. And then he became this dance teacher with his own school when he was 20 years old, which is sort of the slow progression of how he wound up making it to Hollywood. And why he would have the hubris to cast somebody like Debbie Reynolds, because he's like, I've taught so many people how to dance. I can teach her. I taught Frank Sinatra how to dance. I can teach her. And... Uh, I mean, by hook or by crook. I mean, he did it. She looks amazing in this film, and now she's making, uh, you know, VHS tap videos. So yeah. I guess it all worked. All the best teachers make you cry under a piano. <laughs> um, let's talk about Lena. Oh, yes. I think this performance by Jean Hagen is so funny. Her little eye rolls, everything she does when she's not allowed to talk, this accent that she comes up with. So her- that's not her real voice. No, she created a false voice. In fact, here's probably the best clip of showing us the Lena voice. Okay. This is Jean doing her false voice and then going a step further and doing Debbie's false voice of Lena. So every voice you're about to hear in this clip is actually the actress, Jean Hagen, and not Debbie Reynolds at all. Wow. All set in there? Right. Nothing can keep us apart. Our love will last till the stars turn cold. All right, Kathy, go ahead. Nothing can keep us apart. Our love will last till the stars turn cold. That's great. Perfect. Wow, that's both. That's her doing both. That's Jean Hagen doing both. So even in this movie about other people doing your voices, there's also a line that that's not Debbie. That's actually Jean. That's like Inception. Whoa. And did you know that, that Jean Hagen was doing an impression of Judy Holliday, who was an old sketch partner of uh, Comden and Green. They thought, oh, she would be great for this movie, but she just won the Oscar for uh, 1950's Born Yesterday, and she couldn't do it. So they got Hagen, who was an understudy for Born Yesterday, on stage, and they're like, can you kind of just do her? And she did. So who is the real Hagen? Please stand up. We don't know. I mean, she's... (laughs) She's doing impression upon impression upon impression. By the way, talking about the scenes that Gene and Debbie did have together, though, that cake scene where they first meet. Oh, yeah. Gene Hagen told Debbie right before that scene where Debbie throws a cake uh, and it hits Gene in the face, get it on the first take or you'll get the cake and the ring in your face. Wow. By the way, can I just be real? I think in her silent films, Lena is an okay actress. Yes. I think the emotions on her face are super convincing. And I think it's amazing that in these scenes, even though you've seen the work and the chaos and the conversations and the backstabbing it took to make Debbie Reynolds' quote-unquote voice be on top of hers, it works. Those scenes are beautiful. And it wouldn't work if Lena was a shitty actress. I just have to say that she is indeed a shimmering, glowing star in the cinema firmament or perhaps fire and music. Wow. We're going to bring it back to Eve. I will. I'm going to say that I don't think Don is a good actor, but Don knows how to sing. 
Because when he's in the silent film, they're laughing at him too. He's overacting. And they realize the only way to save this movie is to appeal to the talent that he has, which is singing. It's undeniable. So I also think that as actors, they are equal or having a hard time transitioning. He just has a better voice. That's true. Hot take. Lena may be slightly better than him. I would back you on that 100%. Also, did you read the original script draft? It ends with Lena and Cosmo getting married. Yes, and we would have also seen the premiere of Lena's film Jungle Princess, in which her dialogue would only consist of grunts, which really made me laugh that they made her like into like uh, a kind of a Tarzan Legend of Grace Stoke kind of character. A free Lena. Some facts about the year when this comes out. Uh, this is 1952. So we're in a time where like a new house is costing about $9,000. A gallon of gas is 20 cents. But in popular culture, Diary of Anne Frank is published this year. The Today Show starts. Um, KFC opens its first franchise. Uh, Mad Magazine comes out. Agatha Christie's murder mystery play The Mousetrap opens and becomes the longest running production running in history. Other movies that are out, The African Queen, The Greatest Show on Earth, The Quiet Man. Um, so it's interesting. We're, we're in this time where I feel like this is the switch. There's like, a, like a more popular media is coming out at this time, I feel Wait, like. Wait, I love that The Greatest Show on Earth came out because watching this, I was thinking of The Greatest Show Men. Oh, right. Yes. Because there's that scene uh, where Rebecca Ferguson's uh, opera singer stands on stage and sings like, all oh, the stars of the yeah. thousand spotlights. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson actually sang that song and then only found out later that her voice got dubbed. So she wow. had her own Lena moment. Two other quick things that are interesting. First, don't walk sign is installed in New York City and barcodes are invented here in this year. What about a don't dance sign? Because I got dance. <laughs> now, Amy, I know you are a great movie aficionado. We are cutting in this film to other iconic uh Talkies, right? And that section is like a little montage section where you're seeing like the um, the nutcrackers and the women saying like I referenced that earlier. Booba dooba doop. That these are all uh, kind of callbacks to things that people would know. They are, and I want to actually play a little bit of that because I love this montage musically. Because what they're doing here here in this montage is they're not trying to make a lovely montage. Mm -hmm. The music is discordant. It's clashing. It's frantic. Even the colors are clashing. It goes from different shades of pink as you're watching it. You get the sense in this montage, not like, hey, the transition to sound is exciting. You get, hey, the transition to sound is fucking chaotic. Oh, my God. What are we doing? Which brings us back to that clip that we played earlier where they did the original Singing in the Rain. It's like, we can do it. We don't know exactly how to do it. It's like, we haven't harnessed its power yet. Um, I mean, maybe it wasn't until this movie that we feel like, now they know. Yeah, yeah. Now they know. Now Gene Kelly knows, I'm going to put the camera above my head just for a second right before I start the Singing in the Rain number and look exuberant. Then I'm going to lower it. I'm going to move it here. It's it. He's dancing with the camera. So I know we know that uh, Arthur Freed is clearly a bad dude um, in his personal life and as a human being. But I'm also, like, not loving all of these songs. Like, there are great ones in here. But, you know, that song where it's like this ballad between Gene Kelly and Debbie Reynolds, while visually beautiful, where he puts her on the pedestal and turns on the lights, I'm like, eh, okay, fine song. It's a filler song. Is okay. that what you're saying? Is yeah. It's a filler song? There's a couple filler songs in this movie. <laughs> I mean, I think that's fair. What I really like about the song is I think it just gets at the heart of 
the struggle to be honest that we right. have with Don. I mean, what happens right before this scene is that they're finally admitting their feelings together and they both say, honest, honest. And then for him to be really honest, he's got to walk into this entirely fake world. In fact, let's just listen to that. Why, it's just an empty stage. At first glance, yes. But wait a second. A beautiful sunset. Mist from the distant mountains. Colored lights in a garden. We add 500,000 kilowatts of stardust. A soft summer breeze. And you sure look lovely in the moonlight, Kathy. Now that you have the proper setting, can you say it? You know, I know we said that there's not much of a dramatic arc in this movie, but thinking about it after hearing that clip, I'm like, well, maybe the arc is we go from someone who is a professional liar to someone who is compelled to tell the truth, like rip down the facade, whether it's, you know, announcing to the world that he is now with Debbie Reynolds or at the very end when he conspires his plan to basically, you know, show up Lena Lamont when she has her big moment. Whoa, that's so true. And actually, I didn't even realize that we have a curtain falling down Wizard of Oz moment right oh, yeah. there. What is that voice behind the curtain? Yeah. This doom. I, I love that that's what we're doing in Hollywood films. You want to tell the truth? Well, life's a stage. Drop the curtain. Do you think that he knew that some of these songs were filler? So as long as they looked impressive, he could get away with it? Like that number, uh, the beautiful girl number, I thought that was a mediocre song. But the showcase of the outfits that sequence, I forgot about the singing, and I'm just watching this visually interesting thing that he's doing here. It just really just jumped out to me. Yeah, I've noticed I keep doing this thing lately when we deal with films that are set in the past themselves. When I was watching that number, I was thinking, okay, if this movie came out today, what if they did a showcase of 90s costumes? Right. And they're like, and this lovely flannel dress with boots, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And I would have gotten the biggest kick out of it. I would oh, get the biggest kick out of it. It's amazing. I mean, it's sort of like a more personalized version of like The Price is Right. You know, it's like, what's behind here? Showcase number one. It's a jet ski, but it's like a you know, woman in a bathing suit. Uh, I also liked how revealing that wedding dress was. The final, uh, you know, uh, outfit. It was like very leggy for a wedding dress, especially in the uh, 50s, which was not even in the 50s because it was about the, uh, the late 20s. You know, I think in watching this movie, it feels like you could do it again. You could make a remake of this film. I think you could actually, you know, it's a story that I think there's similarities between this and La La Land for sure. Oh, do you think so? <laughs> Hi, that's how he hears me rolling my eyes and wishing Damien Chazelle had an original bone in his body. Oh, man. What? Sorry. What, what a <laughs> slam. What a slam. But I guess that's the closest thing that we got. But I think, is there a way to do this movie and maybe the answer is Mamma Mia that updates it and feels a little bit more current. You don't have to be like of the age of talkies into sound, but maybe that's the only way to tell the story. Yeah, what you need is that earnest spirit. I think that's what I didn't like about La La Land, why it didn't click with me, mm -hmm. is because it felt too much like, hey, you liked this scene when we did it in this movie, and hey, you liked that when this movie did it too. It didn't feel hard-earned from a love of, of making a musical today. It did. The characters didn't feel like they were pressed into singing and dancing, right. it felt like a nostalgia piece. And it's weird because Singing in the Rain is itself a nostalgia piece. You're being nostalgic for 1929, which a lot of the people in the audience remembered. But it felt more like a snow globe of a movie 
Because in a musical, you want to feel that moment when these two people are pressed to have to act, to right. have to sing. Well, I mean, I felt that in La La Land when Emma Stone has that number where she goes in for the audition that she's been working on and that camera just pulls into her. Like I, And that number is the most kind of reminiscent to this big last one that we talked about uh, where you know she goes on this kind of giant journey. I love that number. I also have to judge La La Land with a slight bit of um, skepticism because I saw it after I had a child, and every movie that I saw and got out of the house to go see was great. Uh, and <laughs> and going back and watching some of those, I'm like, oh, maybe I was a little bit off. <gasps> That's totally fair. Well, you had baby you... brain. But honestly, on that point, it is true that that moment when a film has to shift into a song is really tricky. Like, how do you believably make that happen without, say, having the audience burst into giggles like they do at, you know, the bad Lena Lamont yeah. sound picture that they see? How do you make sure the spell stays with the audience? I want to listen just to a little bit of how they start the number Moses Supposes. Okay. Because what you hear is this conversation turning into music just from the way that Donald O'Connor starts to speak. Moses supposes his toes are roses, but Moses supposes erroneously. But Moses, he noses, his toes aren't roses, as Moses supposes his toes to be. Moses supposes his toes are roses, but Moses supposes erroneously. A Moses is a Mose, a rose is a rose, a toes is a toes. Hoop-de-doody-doodle. Moses supposes his toes are roses, but Moses supposes erroneously. For Moses, he noses, his toes aren't roses. And before we let it get too far away, uh, do you think that Gene Kelly would like to see a sequel to Singing in the Rain or maybe a remake? No. Gene Kelly would be like, I made the best version, you guys. Go away. Well, let's see what Gene Kelly had to say when someone cornered him about it. Oh, no. Am I wrong? How come they never did a remake of Singing in the Rain? Well, they keep talking about it every year, but they, got, they, they want to do it on Broadway. Would you do the remake? No. Would you direct it? No. Would you go see it? No. <laughs> There was one Did you have your old umbrella left over from Singing nope. in the Rain? <laughs> so clearly he doesn't want a sequel, but he also had something really interesting to say about modern dance. If you see dancing today with young people who don't dance arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, cheek to cheek, does that upset you because they dance apart? Well, it doesn't upset me, but I think they're losing uh, a lot of uh, fun that we used to have. It was very nice to put your arm around a young lady and bend uh, her down and go around the floor and, and have her dance with you, two people as one. I thought that was quite nice. I think they're missing something, yes. All right, Amy, it comes down to this. Where do you think this movie falls? I mean, clearly, I think we both agree that it belongs on the AFI Top 100 list. And as a matter of fact, interestingly enough, when this movie came out, like you said, it got great reviews, but people thought American in Paris was the superior film. It was kind of, this is an afterthought. This came out right after American in Paris had won some awards. And people are like, it's good. It's not as good. And then, like you said, it, it switched. You know, I haven't seen American in Paris. Do you, does it stick out to you as much as this? I mean, it's good. But I do think maybe why this grew is that idea that Singing in the Rain now, in the year of our Lord, 2018, is not just an awesome, hilarious musical that makes us really happy. It also makes us feel smarter about the silent era. Mm. And maybe that extra little bit of intellectualism on top of it is why it's dominant. Well, when I think about this movie, I think about Wizard of Oz, and I guess they both are very vibrant, bright, happy films. I think Five is a really solid placement for it. Uh, Maybe it goes higher, I don't know. I mean... 
the way I feel about this movie is it's kind of a movie that you can show to anyone that everyone would love. Right now above it is Raging Bull and hmm. Casablanca and The Godfather and, of course, Citizen Kane. You know, in my opinion, I don't know. I'm, I, I, of course, Raging Bull is great. Casablanca is great. But Singing in the Rain, I, I, may, I may push it just a little higher. Would you flip-flop it perhaps in Raging Bull? A hundred percent. Yeah. Would you? I would too. hundred yeah. percent. I'm surprised Rachel pulls four, honestly. But in I guess we- we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get into it. Like, I feel like in a weird way, the first couple of films, well, I guess we talk about this idea of like what is watchable versus what is academically impressive. This, I think, is a watchable and great film uh, that you could put on for a five-year-old and you could put on for a 65-year-old. You could put on for a 165-year-old if you can find one. Let's go get them. <laughs> um, all right. So what do you think? Let us know on our Twitter page. Uh, you can follow all the latest movies that we'll be watching and our list as it continues to grow at unspooledpod.com. And now it is time to roll the die for next week's episode. I'm going to roll the Zoga hater on it. Ooh. All right. You ready for this? Yes. Let's see. Oop. What it do we got? is 89. Ooh, what is that? The Sixth Sense. Ooh, I see dead people. Oh, do you see dead people? That gives me an idea for what our calling could be. Are you ready? Sure. What if we have people call in and name an actor from one of our films that we've already covered here on the show, a dead actor, Mm. and they tell us what dead actor they want to talk to and what they want to ask. I love it. Well, give us a call at 747-666-5824 and tell us, what dead person you want to speak to. This is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season 3 has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, Season 3 is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Fake nuts. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, Yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. (laughs) Jesus. I mean, (laughs) Jazos. Ruler of the Eighth Circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world... 
Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.